Today, we are going to try to tie this whole thing together, all right? So uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks, the, uh, the ambition of this morning is to tie all of this together. So if you have a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe they read this at your wedding if you're married, or maybe you've heard this at a wedding, or uh, maybe you've heard this at a church service. This is one of the more well-known passages in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not listen, insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let's pray. God, thank you for the scripture. And for the opportunity to gaze upon love that is beyond human calculations. We pray that today that you would unveil for us the secret of a thriving relationship. God, we, uh, most of us can count on one hand the thriving relationships we know in this world. I pray in Jesus' name that you tie everything we've heard together today. For your glory, Jesus, that we would um, discover the secret of what it means to thrive in relationship, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, where do people meet people these days? Where do people meet their soulmates? Some people meet uh, their spouse in high school. There's always a few of those, right? And then some people meet their spouse in college. Uh, That's because, you know, you take a lot of people the same age, put them together. It's a great place to meet someone, you know, and a great place to interact. Now, if you don't meet your spouse in high school or college, well, then things get a little bit trickier, right? And you've got to sort of navigate, where am I going to meet people outside of a clump of people that are sort of in the same life direction as me? And so some people look to a bar or to a club, right? And they say, I'll meet people there. And That generally doesn't work out that well. Some people look to the internet, right? 40 million Americans are uh, dating someone or, you know, seeking a relationship online. No shame in that game. I'm just saying it's it's popular. And and then uh, some people go to church. Um, Hearty amen from anyone. And, uh, you know, if you're single, what are you looking for? If you're single here today, not married or maybe in a relationship, what are you looking for in a spouse? Hopefully you're looking for um, someone who's in love with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I hope that that's kind of high on your list. You know, um, somebody that has maybe physical attributes that you are attracted to, right? Um, somebody that has a life direction that's maybe the same as yours or a temperament that fits really well for you. You know, most people, when you ask them, what are you, you, know, what are you looking for in a relationship? They say something like, well, just someone who's just right for me. Somebody who just fits me, a perfect fit. I'm looking for my missing piece. Do you guys remember that book? I uh, I loved that book as a kid. The book, uh, the missing piece. Um, I know that maybe you don't know that book. Let me give you a quick vision of it. Uh, go ahead and throw up our picture there. Maybe it's coming back to you now. The missing piece is a kid's book, and in the missing piece, you have this partially completed circle who's looking for you know his fit. And so he goes and looks in all different directions. He crosses a jungle and a mountain range, and he goes through a river, all looking for his missing piece. And he finds one that's too small. He finds one that's too big. He finds one that's too square. He finds one that's too long. And then he finds one that fits just right. He doesn't hold it tightly enough, and he loses it. Somebody says amen. No. And then somebody, uh, you know, another time later, he finds one that fits just right. Again, he holds it too tightly, and he crushes it. 
brilliant author. Finally, at the end of the book, he finds the one that fits just right, and he realizes that he prefers being solo. And so he lets go of the missing piece, and he ends the book alone. And uh, interestingly enough, that paradigm goes for soil of our fabric, this idea that I have a special, perfect missing piece out there somewhere. Some of you are here, and you're single, and you believe that. And you're saying there's someone. And we Christianize it, right? God has made a specific, particular person with just the right fit for me. And all of my weaknesses, they're her strengths. And all of my strengths, they're her weaknesses. And we will perfectly fit together just like a pizza pie, right? It's just going to be perfect. It's going to be awesome. We're going to just fit exactly right. Here's just one problem with that idea. It's not in the Bible. Second problem What if Joe is supposed to marry Sue, but Sue doesn't pick up on it, and she marries Roger instead, right? And so now Sue has married Roger, so Joe can't marry Sue, who's his missing piece, so he has to settle for Claire. And so he now settles for Claire. The problem is Claire was supposed to marry Bill, right? And so Claire was supposed to marry Bill, but now her missing piece can't be satisfied because she married Joe instead. And so what I'm saying is if we follow this out, what we could realize is that if you're waiting for that perfect someone who God ordained from the beginning of time, who's going to fit you and satisfy all of your weaknesses, and you're going to satisfy all of their weaknesses, if that's your paradigm, all it takes is one person 10,000 years ago to miss it, and it messed the rest of us up. I don't know if it works this way. If you're single here today and you're saying, you know, I just can't find anybody that's the right fit. Or maybe you're divorced here today and you're saying, you know, that relationship just just ripped me apart. Or maybe you're married here today and uh, you're thinking, I'm not sure if I married the right person. I'm having a little buyer's remorse here. I'm not sure sure this thing's going to work out. See, for an entire generation or for maybe generations beyond generations, we have bought into this idea. You know, you think of things like Match.com or you remember the TV show Love Connection? Does anybody else remember that show? And the whole paradigm of that, I mean, I love it. It was fun. I liked that show. But, you know, the whole idea of the show was that you could find someone and make that connection. And it, was, it would just be, a, it would just, be a, just the right fit. Or Match.com, you would find, I mean, look at the underlying idea in the name. I'm looking for a match for someone who will be compatible with me, right? And so the fundamental concept is that my problem, stay with me today, in relationship is a compatibility problem. Whether you're single or whether you're struggling in your marriage, unfortunately, here at City Church, we do interact with a lot of different people in a lot of young marriages. And more often than not, we sit in a room with a struggling marriage and the person says, you know, I just don't think we're compatible anymore. I just don't think we fit well together. And the The belief system is that if I could just find someone who fits well with me, it would satisfy those core needs, right? Now, there's true, it's true that there are some issues of compatibility, that compatibility has some substance to it. You do need to find someone with, you know, likes that are the same or whatever, different things that make you fit well together. But the root of your problem, and here's what I want to get to today, is not a compatibility problem. The root of your relationship struggles, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're divorced, whether you're on the other side of a tough relationship or looking for a new relationship, the root of your problem is not a compatibility problem. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not the one. They're not the one. They're not the one. No one is the one. 
Now, some of that was awkward. It's like, yeah, you're my sister, but you're not the one. You know, <laughs> no one is the one. No one is the perfect one. So what's the root of the problem? The root of the problem is that you have a disease. That's the root of the problem, is a disease that is living inside of you. Let me illustrate, okay? Imagine you wake up tomorrow morning and you take a shower and you, cut, you, know, you comb your hair and you, you get yourself all ready to go and you, you go out and as you're leaving, you find a strange lump somewhere, okay? And that strange lump somewhere just kind of popped up, didn't notice it the day before, but now you see it and you feel it and it's strange and, you know, it's there and so you, you, you just deal with it. You don't really worry about it. It's there the next day. It's there the next day. A week goes by. It kind of starts to concern you. You go to the doctor. You say, doctor, I have this strange lump in my somewhere and I would just appreciate if you could check it out. And so the doctor checks it out. And, and they say, well, uh, we should probably run some tests on this. They run some tests and then you run another test and another test and another test and another test. And before you know it, you're sitting in the doctor's office on that awkward paper, a little bit up high, and he's in the nice chair. And you're sitting there and he looks at you or she looks at you and they say, um, you have cancer. I just said that and somebody got a chill down their spine. Some of us have experienced that moment. Some of us have had mothers and fathers or family members or close friends that have experienced that moment, that moment where they find out that you or maybe someone you love has an uncontrollable growth inside of them of abnormal cells in the body, that uh, there is this thing. For some reason, cells that are damaged aren't just being discarded. Instead, these cells inside of you, it's an internal issue are multiplying and devouring the healthy cells. Now, you can pretend that it's not there, but if you have cancer and you pretend that it's not there, all it's going to do is ravage your body, take over, and kill you. What I'm saying today is your relationship problem at its root isn't your spouse. Spouse is saying amen. Your relationship problem at its root, isn't how messed up your boyfriend was, your girlfriend was, isn't how messed up your spouse was, isn't how messed up that person was. That's not the root of the issue. There's something else underneath, internally going on that's distorting your capacity for a healthy relationship. And as we pull all this together today, as we've looked at a vision for family, as we've looked at a vision for a man of God, as we've looked at a vision for a woman of God, as we pull it all together today by God's grace. What I want you to see today is that there is a deeper problem. The scripture says that by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Psalm 14 says that we have become corrupt. Ecclesiastes says the heart is full of evil. It's full of madness. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately sick and deceitful above all things. In other words, there's something inside of you, the Bible calls it sin, that distorts and corrupts your ability to function in a healthy relationship. And this sin magnifies the sins of others and minimizes the issues of self. And your own perspective is contorted and distorted by this secret something dwelling inside the cellular structure of your soul called sin. Good news, right? And it leads to incredible self-absorption. Some of you are saying, oh, no, 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 no. You have no idea how messed up my ex-wife was. You have no idea how messed up my ex-boyfriend was. You have no idea how crazy they were. No, you have no idea how deep this thing goes. You ever take a picture, you know, there's 35 people in the picture and you're in the picture. What's the first thing you're thinking about? How do I look? Everybody else looks like an idiot. I look good in that picture. Let's use that one, right? I mean, that's what happens. There's something... 
That is so... All right, so back in October, we launched uh, our, our second location at City Church, our Bridgeport location, which you should go visit it, by the way. It's a blast down there. It's really cool. A lot of single people down there, too. I'm just saying. Anyways, um, it's a good time down there, and uh, God's really growing. It's exploding, and, um, and we started using video. So, so I teach, and, and the video is shown there. And so it was the first time that I consistently saw myself on video. And, you know, you pick up kind of weird things that you do when you see yourself frequently on video. And um, not that I do any weird things, but, but I started noticing, like, oh, wow, you know, gosh, I, I need to get a haircut. That's kind of a, dang, my skin looks sort of pasty. I mean... Can we fix that, please? Can we work on the lights? Because I look like I'm a vampire right now. And maybe we can, it's got to be the, it's got to be the lights. It can't be me. I don't actually look like that. And, and I wore a, me and Adam video, I wore, a, I wore a cardigan a couple weeks ago on the video and, and it kind of made my midsection look a little thicker than reality. And, and I saw it and I was like, dang, kind of look thick. And you know, it, something inside of me started, and I haven't been a vain person by nature. I don't really consume myself with how I look, you know, as I don't think anyways, at least, well, Maybe my sin has deceived me, but I, I, I didn't, I don't think I did. And then all of a sudden I started finding myself thinking, well, boy, we're posting these online now. Did I wear that shirt last week? Because I don't want to wear the same shirt two weeks in a row on the video. And does that belt even, yeah, it goes, all right. It goes with this outfit. I mean, the other day I was praying and uh, I was down on my face actually just crying out to God that people would meet Jesus in our city. And my heart was breaking. I was down on my knees. And I don't know, maybe um, we're actually going to do a series on this next week starting called Contend With Me. We talk about prayer and we talk about uh, how to see God answer prayer and how do we see uh, miracles happen. And I'm just on my face just asking God, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you move in power? And I'm just contending for God to move in our city. And I'm crying out to God. And then in the midst, this just happened like five days ago, in the midst of crying out to God, I'm down on my face and something clicked inside of me. And I kind of paused to stop talking for a second. I was just being still and just listening to God like a holy, righteous man of God. And then I started thinking to myself, what am I going to wear this week? I'm dead serious. I started thinking to myself, what, what shoes do I have to wear with that shirt? And I, I got to iron that shirt. And and this is what I'm thinking about. I don't know. Maybe I wore that. I got to check the video, see if I wore that last week. And as I'm sitting there thinking about that, I felt like God pulled back for about three seconds my perspective. And he showed me family members and friends that will be in hell for eternity if they don't turn to Jesus. And I'm on my knees And I'm trying to pray, but for however long, I don't know, three minutes, five minutes, I'm not sure how long. I had just been thinking about shoes and shirts and and all these other stupid things. And in this moment, I started to see what's at stake here. I started to see what prayer can do. I started to see the caverns of my own selfishness. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? What am I doing? I don't think I'm the only one. I think that you get so absorbed in your own self-interest, your own selfish ambitions, your own focus, your own stuff. How do I look? How do I come off? How important am I? I don't know what your little tag is, but you find those issues and they become so consuming for you that you have the ability to walk by people in need and not just decide to not help them, but not even recognize that they're there. 
You have the ability to interact every day with people who are far from God and have no conviction to do anything about it. Think about this for a minute. The paradigm in which I adopt through the scripture is that people will die and be separated from God in a tormentous hell for eternity. And my words and my prayers can change their heart and I do nothing. You have a disease. You have a disease. It goes deep into the core of who you are. It absorbs you with self. That disease is called sin. It is a deep, far-reaching disease, but God has a cure. The essence of his cure is outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. It's this love, this divine love that's patient when it shouldn't shouldn't be patient. It's kind. When it shouldn't be kind, it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Whew, that's a whole sermon right there. It doesn't keep a record of it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It endures all things. It endures all things. Apply that to your marriage. It endures. We hear about this love, and we think to ourselves, "Well, that's a nice idea, but um, that's not exactly my experience. I'm not actually living in that type of love." Let me show you something. Let me show you how to live in that type of love. Does that sound good? Good, thanks. Second Corinthians. Look at what he says in Second Corinthians. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians. Check this out. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Stay with this. Stay with this. It says in verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. That's a big statement. In other words, another translation says compels us. I'm compelled. I'm driven by this love. In other words, this idea of self-sacrificing, serving love isn't just an idea. It's gotten inside of me. That's what he's saying. It compels me. Why? Because we have concluded this. In other words, check this out. The conclusions that I have made have led me to experientially live in God's love. Okay, I have believed certain things and those beliefs have driven the love of God into my heart in an experiential way. That's what he's saying. It's not just an idea. It's not just pie in the sky. Oh, it'd be nice to think like that, but nobody ever does. Paul actually experienced this love because of conclusions that he had made. Look at the conclusion he says has driven the love of God deep into his heart. Check it out. We have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. What he's saying here is he's describing what occurred through Jesus in the gospel, the good news. And so many of us think that we're forgiven of our sins because Jesus died on a cross, yet we don't realize that the application for functional relationship is the gospel itself. In other words, one paid the penalty for my sin, so I no longer pay a penalty for my sin in Christ. One suffered the wrath of God, so there is no more wrath left for me to suffer. I don't have to do enough nice things for him to like me. He has permanently declared that he likes me in Christ. If I believe, one has absorbed all of the judgment, so I am judged to be blameless. One has taken my cancer into his own body and died already from that cancer so that I no longer need to be dominated by the disease. Can you catch a glimpse today, not just of your own depravity and your own selfishness, though I want you to see that, but also of his scandalous love in light of your depravity. There aren't that many effective cures for cancer. People know that. 
One of the most effective, however, is uh, radiation therapy, right? And so maybe you know about this stuff, but radiation therapy is an amazing idea. Really what they do is they take these incredibly powerful rays of radiation, which is light or power, right? And they zap it into the location where the cancer is. And so they focus it. A lot of times they hit it from multiple directions and they try to get that cancer to be exposed to the radiation. Now, interestingly enough, you don't do it once. It's not a one-time deal. You do it typically five days a week. Hello, five days a week for six or seven weeks. That's going to mess up your schedule. Right? I mean, anybody that suffered from cancer or knows somebody that suffered from cancer are fully aware of the fact that once you discover you have the disease, it messes up your schedule, does it not? Oh, yeah, you know, it's really messing my schedule up. No, because they realize, hey, if I blow off this treatment, I'm going to die. And so, you know what? I'm going to do the treatment because consistent exposure to this radiation has the potential of actually getting into my body, piercing through my skin, and breaking apart the cellular DNA that is corrupt and is destroying and ravaging my body and killing it right where it is so it can't spread anymore. That's what happens with the radiation. And so, you know what? I'm going to make the time for it. I'm going to make the time for it because it could save my life. Maybe you didn't catch the analogy yet. This gospel, let me just say it like this. When Christ, the gospel, when Christ is regularly applied to the cancer of your soul, his love breaks apart the DNA of your selfishness. Yeah, you can clap over that. When Christ is, just like radiation, friends, it must be regularly applied. You must apply it, and then you must apply. Friends, it's going to mess up your schedule. It's going to have to be a a five-day-a-week type of thing, a a seven-day-a-week type of thing. You're going to have to do it over an extended period of time. But as you experience the truth of his love and your sin, and you see them clearly, it gets inside of you, and it starts to crush and destroy, rip apart, and kill the DNA of selfishness that dwells in your soul. Tim Keller, one of the great preachers of our time, said that the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared to believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Some of us wouldn't dare to hope that God loves us the way he does. He does. He loves us that much. Each time you apply the truth of Christ's love, each time you gaze upon the gospel, There's a humiliation that comes because you see how selfish you've been. You see how wicked you've been. You see how deep this thing goes in the core of your own selfish soul. And every time you experience the gospel, that humiliation is married to exaltation because this Jesus has elevated you to the very right hand of God. He has sat you in heavenly places. He has declared you blameless, adopted you into his family and declared that you are forever fully forgiven of all your debts And so as you see humiliation and exaltation, something inside of you changes. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. 14 says, the love of Christ controls us. We've concluded one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. Here it is. That those who live might no longer Those are some of the most important words of the Bible. Might no longer live for themselves. There's your secret. It's in the gospel. It's in gazing upon Christ. 
It's in gazing upon what he has accomplished again and again and again. The consistent application of the gospel to my heart that breaks the selfishness might no longer live for themselves that consumes and defines our relationships. Let me make this real practical today. I want to give you two implications, and then we're going to be done today. Two implications of the gospel in your relationships. Maybe you're here and you're single today. Maybe you're on the backside of a terrible relationship. Maybe you're here and you're divorced. Maybe you're here and you're married, and that marriage is sucking wind. Or maybe you're here and you're married, and that marriage is getting along but could be thriving. And you're still saying, Justin, truthfully, I could count on one hand the number of thriving relationships I know. Let me give you two implications of the gospel. Let me, let me build this about as big as I can, that if you would have apply to your relationship for the next 30 years, it will be the defining mark of your life. These better be good. Let me give you two implications of the gospel that if you would take on as a mantra for your attitude in relationship for the rest of your life, everything about your relationship will look different than this world. We've covered the role of men, the role of women, the vision for marriage. Let me give you two implications of the gospel today. Number one, you ready for this? I encourage you to write these down. Number one, treat your sin of self-centeredness as the main problem to be tackled in the relationship. Somebody say, ouch. Treat your sin of self-centeredness as the main problem to be tackled. I know it's a clumsy statement. I just... That's the best way I can figure out to say it. Treat your sin of self-centeredness as the main problem to be tackled in the relationship. See, most relationships fall apart because he's so messed up and she's so selfish. And the problem is that we think that by looking at the sins of others, we can fix them. Wrong. By looking at your own sins. Why? Why? Because in the gospel, you see your own humiliation. You see the wickedness of your own heart and how Christ has loved you in spite of it. And so you choose not to focus on the sins of your spouse, but instead to focus on the sins in your own heart. Treat yourself, Justin, you don't understand, she's 90% wrong and I'm 10% wrong. Focus all your attention on that 10%. Treat your sin. This is radical as the main problem. Well, hold on a second. What if I, as the husband, treat my sin as the main problem and she, as the wife, treats my sin as the main problem? What happens now, right? This is not cool. Well, you'll be embarrassed. You'll be humbled. And you'll have to say to her, you know what? I'm trying to fight this selfishness, but the truth is I should have stayed home and helped with the kids. Instead, I did my own thing. And I want to say I'm sorry about that because I was being selfish again. And this thing, I'm, I'm, I'm battling this thing. This, I'm going to tackle this thing so I can learn sacrificial responsibility. I love you. And she says, darn right. Pff, you're wrong. You shouldn't have gone. Selfish man. Pff, your sin is the major problem. And then you do it again. And then you do it again. And she sees you consistently working on your own self-centeredness. Well, not every time, but most of the time. When that's the case, you know what happens? Conviction from the Holy Spirit starts to get a hold of your spouse. And before you know it, they're starting to treat their selfishness as the main problem to be tackled. And when two people treat their issue as the main problem, Now you got something divine. Now you have a beautiful, beautiful marriage. 
If your spouse doesn't follow suit, do it anyway. If you're single, buckle up and commit to it now. Implication number two, serve your spouse to the degree that Jesus is worthy of service. Serve your spouse to the degree that Jesus is worthy of service. The other breakdown that happens in a male-female relationship in marriage, the husband says, I'm not going to sacrifice for her. She doesn't even appreciate what I do now. And the wife says, I'm not going to honor him and respect him. He's not acting respectably. And so we say, I'm not going to respect you because you don't deserve it. And the other one says, I'm not going to sacrifice for you because you don't deserve it. Friend, the only way to break the cycle is the husband begins to sacrifice to the degree that Jesus is worthy of sacrifice. And the wife begins to honor to the degree that Jesus is worthy to honor. And when you treat Jesus as, as your spouse, you treat your spouse just as you would Christ, something starts to change and the two of you begin to experience the honor and the respect. The husband grows into the man who is honorable of sacrifice and the divine grace of God marks your relationship. You serve because you've been served by Christ. The implication of his love is that you give it freely to those closest to you. Serve your spouse to the degree that Jesus is worthy of service. If the, uh, if the, if the uh, piano player wants to come out, come on out, Dennis. We're gonna sing in just a second as God leads. Ephesians chapter five says it like this. We've looked at the relationship that men have. We've looked at the relationship that women have in marriage. We've looked at the bigger picture of uh, marriage as a whole. And today we pull back and we say, how do we have thriving relationships? How do we get to a place where relationships are thriving? Ephesians 5 wraps it up all in one phrase. issue of uh, family and marriage. Some of us are single here today. Some of us are divorced. Some of us are married. I want to urge you right now, look at me just for a second, to consider right now, by God's grace, committing for the rest of your life to allow the implications that we just described define your relationships. I want to urge you right now. You guys can come out. I want to urge you right now Jesus' name, to consider a divine risk. Consider forfeiting, letting go, and getting rid of a broken paradigm that's been taught to you your whole life in society. It says, I gotta look out for me. I gotta find my missing piece. I gotta do what's best for me. I have a compatibility problem. I need to look out for number one. Surrender it. Instead, dare to believe. Say, you know what? I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem to be tackled in our relationship. And you know what? I'm going to serve you as if you were Jesus himself. 
wherever you're at, what is God saying to you? Right where you're at. Let's pray. God, thank you for what you're speaking to us. As we take a few minutes to reflect in song, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would confirm, that you would comfort, that you would convict, and that you would transform. We open our hearts to you right now. In Jesus' name. If God is using this ministry in your life, we would love to hear from you. Email us at mystory@ourcitychurch.org. For more information about the church, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.